We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And also by Xiao Xin Chung. Hey, good to see you again. Tonight we'll be discussing controversy concerning a proposed all-out defence mobilisation readiness act. The Council of Agriculture taking action to tackle the nationwide egg shortage. Calls for more support and better environments for older workers in the workplace. Sports events organisers having to pay ticket refunds for misadvertised games. And the death of Gu Guangming. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen attending an event in Tainan on Tuesday of this week to commemorate the 76th anniversary of the 228 incident, where she vowed that the government must not make that mistake again. She was accompanied there by government officials, including Premier Chen Jianren, as well as Tainan Mayor Huang Weizhe. And speaking at the ceremony, Tsai said she's determined to lead a free and democratic society so that Taiwanese people can live with dignity, and she also stressed that her administration has worked to promote transitional justice since she took office in 2016. Now, according to Tsai, her government has rescinded 5,983 wrongful convictions and identified 7,572 political files held by the KMT in the party's archives and also identified 42 historic sites of injustice and it's her goal to unveil history to foster more unity. Now, while that event took place trouble-free, the same could not be said of the event at the 228 Peace Memorial Park in Taipei, where Mayor Jung Wen Anne's speech was temporarily halted after protesters broke through a cordon. Now, despite a heavy police presence at the park, several protesters managed to get some three metres from the podium where the mayor had just begun delivering his remarks. Now, Jung remained at the podium as police removed the protesters from the area and eventually finished his remarks. Now, during his remarks, Jung apologised in his capacity as Taipei mayor for the police's confiscation of contraband cigarettes from a woman in Taipei on February 27th of 1947, which was the flashpoint of the protests in the area. And he also said that his apology follows that of former presidents Lee Dong-hui and Ma Ying-jeou. Now, the protesters who breached the security cordon said that as Jung has taken advantage of his family name, he has the responsibility to review and redress the damage caused by Chiang Kai-shek's government. Now, the rumpus on Tuesday led to one KMT city councillor arguing that Taipei should not hold any more memorial events for the victims of the 228 incident. And according to city councillor Zhong Pei-chun, there's no point in marking a memorial holiday if troublemakers use it to raise their voices because it makes the 228 Peace Memorial Day pretty much dark and gloomy. Needless to say, Jong's comments sparked an angry backlash with several DPP city councillors saying that cancelling the event in the capital would only result in more controversy and not be conducive to healing the scars of the incident. So, Xiao, I mean, a pretty bog-standard event in Tainan, but, of course, a bit of a rumpus in Taipei. Yeah, and it is definitely to be expected, right, given the uh, um, the identity of Jiang Wan'an, the mayor Jiang Wan'an, um, given that he is the, the great-grandson of uh, Jiang Kai-shek, who uh, is deemed to be chiefly responsible for this uh, whole 228 um, incident or, or massacre. Um and of course, uh, just like President Tsai Ing-wen said, uh, in her administration, she's been pushing very hard for transitional justice. And just like uh, she noted, um, she's been identifying a lot of uh, uh, mistrials and wrongfully con- uh, convicted cases and even uh, uh, pay back some victims and then declassify documents that, uh, that shine lights on uh, all these dark corners in the uh, so-called white terror era. But 
there's a lot、uh, to be done that is still short of the full transitional justice and chief of which is the symbol of a dictatorship that's still standing largely in for everyone to see uh, or, or, or Taiwanese and international tourists to see in the center of Taipei, which is the、uh, Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall.、Um, and I, I think. Th- As long as that hall stands there and the the, the statue of Chiang Kai Shek keeps standing there, I think there will be protests, protesters protesting two to eight in two to eight memorial events all throughout Taiwan. Because、um, if you think about it, in the shoes of the victims or the family of victims,、um, they have to suffer every year、uh, seeing that the、uh, the the so called、uh, in their mind the, the butchers of the families standing、uh, in proud stance in in the center of Taipei. So I think this is to be. Expected. So I think in our country, there's still a lot to be done in terms of transitional justice, and、uh, and on both sides,、uh, I, I would really hope that people can understand that there's a lot still to be done. Yeah, that's right. And so it's still controversial what to do with the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. That was one of the recommendations of the Transitional Justice Commission before its dissolution last year, that the statue be removed and the structure of the memorial be changed to a park to remember the past. Because, as it pointed out, it's a temple effectively to Chiang Kai-shek. And Jiang Wanan, some have defended him, saying that he just happens to be descended from Chiang Kai-shek, and so he shouldn't be blamed for this. However, he did actually change his name to Chiang to claim the、uh, Chiang family legacy when he and his Father John Chang decided to pursue political office during election campaigning last year as well. When asked where he would take foreign tourists to see a attraction in Taipei, he answered the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. And so that's、uh, apart from being a bad answer that doesn't really reflect well regarding the seriousness of、uh, addressing these past crimes. And so there are all these statues around Taiwan. And for example, recently there was still the recommendation from the Control Room to declassify further files. There's still lack of clarity regarding Li Yixiong's family's killing, for example. And in Tainan as well, which is DPP controlled, there has been controversy regarding the streets that are still named Zhongzhen Road after Chiang Kai-shek. Which are also a symbol of authoritarianism and present in in city maps just across Taiwan, not even just in Tainan, but just in many places. And so I think it points to that there's still quite a lot of issues there. And so this kind of hand waving, saying that well, because people are rowdy and calling attention to these、uh, unrectified injustices of the past. I mean, it's kind of、uh, it's quite a, it's quite unexpected. It's it's expected, I think, from the KMT. But then it is also a disappointing response. And of course, Brian, there was there was in, before even. Two to eight memorial holiday started, and it was announced that Jiang Wanan would attend the event. There was already controversy. Yeah, that's right. And so groups that have historically cooperated with the Taipei city government pulled out of that because of the fact that it would be under Jiang's administration.、Uh, there has been controversy recently regarding, for example, lack of clarity with the visit of Chinese officials to Taipei that their schedules were not publicized because of perhaps fearing protests and so forth. And so I think particularly now the civil society groups that were willing to work with the Taipei city government in the past would be much less willing. But I think particularly with Jiang as the mayor of Taipei and someone like Koyoi, who is responsible for the events that led to Nalan Deng's self-immolation during the White Terror, it really does point to that there's still a lot of these issues in which people that claim this legacy of the past or have links to the past、uh, Taiwan's authoritarianism in, in previous periods can still be elected to office. And Xiao, what about young people? I mean, obviously, it was a holiday. Do you think young people understand what it is, what happened, what took place, who was to blame? 
or do they just do it's a holiday? Yeah, I think sadly, I mean, for young people, a lot of people just think of it as any other holidays because there are very, very few events or even uh, uh, even lectures, talks, or any any uh, places that actually point out what what's behind the holidays. So just like uh, uh, my sons with schools, uh, they, it's a holiday, but it's really no um, no uh, cl- classroom teachings about why what's happening. So because it's a touchy subject, granted, right? So a lot of people, especially uh, uh, Taiwanese people, do not want to, you know, stalk uh, any uh, animosities between each other by talking about, you know, the historical significance of uh, this m- memorial and why it became a holiday. Um, but th- this is really sad that uh, because we, we want to put special emphasis on this day, but sometimes in, in, in the younger generation, uh, more and more people uh, begin to forget yeah, that's right. There, there are some events such as the Gongshan Music Festival on Kedalong Boulevard each year. And so uh, that does draw young people and it has a kind of different aesthetic uh, involving indie bands, for example, that uh, are politically active and uh, just having many civil society groups gather in stalls at, outside of uh, the uh, kind of stage that's set up there. And so that's a commemoration of young people. And so that is helpful, but it's still only a small group of young people. And uh, though this year is a bit larger, probably because the sense of COVID and the pandemic having passed and so forth, but uh, it's still, I think uh, there's still not enough kind of uh, recognition of that. And of course, Brian, while it was obviously a political incident, certain people argue that the event nowadays should not be politicised and basically (laughs) everyone should shut up, come together and admit what happened. Yeah, it's one of those things, though. But I think there are still major politicians that uh, they actually their political credibility depends on evaluating this past, and so I think uh, there are groups that try to avoid it and using the call that it should be not politicised as a way to avoid discussing these kind of serious issues. I think the call to for it not to politicize this event is uh, is irresponsible, because first of all, uh, the the most the most important element in any transitional justice uh, system is recognition or consensus. So right now in Taiwan, there's no consensus in what happened in in two to eight. You know, on one side it is a, it is a riot, and on the other side it's a massacre. So if we cannot even have a consensus on what happened and who is responsible and what the historical damage documents behind this and we didn't even put anyone behind bars or even uh, punish them for what happens then there cannot be uh, transitional justice there cannot be consensus and recognition so that's why um, it will keep being politicized until that day has come and Brian what do you think the the DPP could do and the KMT could do to make it more of a different day because we, we see the same thing every year we have these events at memorial parks one event will get protesters, one event, they, and I hate to say this, Brian, but they, they say the same thing every year. Yeah, that's one of those things. I mean, for example, sometimes it's the anniversary. If it's a, a significant anniversary, let's say 75 years, then this place is bigger. But I think particularly there could be more light shed on different groups and how they were affected. For example, indigenous and their, how they were targeted by the white terror. Uh, or, for example, just uh, other kind of shedding light on these various facets of history that are kind of buried. I think there's quite a lot. And so I think they could perhaps vary it up in terms of trying to focus on uh, how a specific group is affected or incidents that are not really as known. I mean, people generally, I think, know how the 228... Uh, massacre started with the cigarette uh, contraband incident, but then there are other aspects of it too, and I think particularly, there's a lot about the history of the white terror, particularly outside of Taipei or in other parts of Taiwan, that there hasn't been as much focus. And Xiao, do you think, like the Lantern Festival, it moves around every year, do you think they could move the National Memorial Service to 228 to other cities on a rotating basis? Oh, I think that's definitely uh, a good idea, because now, now, 
it doesn't have to be always in Taipei, right? Because in all over Taiwan, there's a lot of people who suffer from this event because it's not just localized uh, uh, incident. It's all over Taiwan, even in Kaohsiung. So uh, this Lantern Festival it should be, you know, move, move around more and then people should, you know, attend, especially the younger generation. Because when we talk about younger generation, you have to um, mobilize them with uh, some sort of uh, uh, fun events and then teach them about the, the historical meanings behind it. And I think uh, moving this to somewhere else would be a good idea. And Brian, do you think maybe the KMT and the DPP should shut up for 24 hours and join the, <laughs> go on the same stage and actually agree on something? No, it'd be an awkward uh, gathering, to be sure. I was, I was do enjoy the uh, Winter Lantern Festival and you see Jiang and Tai both there and the, the photos of them together and all the other mayors look incredibly awkward. Uh, I'm sure particularly if it's more, more of a serious event, it'd be even more awkward. Yeah, uh, well... We hope that in, in in the future, especially you know, talking about the the younger generation, is that um, we need to really get these passes because we can see a trend in the, the younger generation, the, the younger they are, they 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 are really fed up about you know all this politicization, all this infighting, all this bickering among politicians, but uh, they they fail to see that what what's behind it, what's driving this you know the victims, you know uh, the year after year, the the, the suffering, the the you know the, the, the inability to to forgive so th- that is really a lot of that that should be uh dig more into and we hope that uh going forward we can see more and more you know you know uh forgiveness on both sides Moving on now, and the presidential office on Wednesday announced that a series of proposed revisions to the all-out defence mobilisation readiness act are still being discussed and have yet to be finalised. Now, the statement came as the KMT is threatening to block the legislation due to concerns over media freedom and the mobilisation of young people during wartime. Now, the planned revisions have been proposed by the Ministry of National Defence, and the revisions include clauses stipulating that local governments as well as news and media organisations must cooperate with central government controls on all information networks, including online media platforms, publishers and television broadcasters. The amendments asked the Ministry of Education to provide the All Out Defence Mobilisation Agency with a list of all students aged 16 and above to help it know the exact number of people it can mobilise if war breaks out. And the revisions also set or increase penalties for the spreading of misinformation or failing to comply with mobilisation or requisition orders in the event of a conflict. Now, KMT Chairman Eric Jew has said on several occasions that his party will not pass the revisions due to concerns over government control of media outlets and the possible mobilisation of students during wartime. So, Brian... Yeah, so I think it's quite ironic seeing the KMT raising these concerns because a lot of these uh, laws, I think, about total mobilization date back to actually the period of KMT rule in which there was an attempt to retake China and so forth, and there was a lot of war preparation in terms of Taiwan as a society overall. And I think particularly now with post-Ukraine, with the uh, threat from China, there's much more discussion of it. Uh, there's also concern regarding, for example, that there is disinformation and misinformation, that uh, major meals in Taiwan have been accused of directly accepting funds from China's Taiwan Affairs Office or uh, allowing the Taiwan Affairs Office to have a say in the editorial direction of content. And so this is uh, regarding major outlets, particularly those owned by the Watchman Group, with such reporting from the Financial Times, also the Apple Daily. But then we have also a host of uh, online websites that are hard to regulate and disinformation on social media. And so the KMT has, for example, tried to target this thing. It is similar to the Digital Services Intermediary Act, an attempt to crack down on political freedoms and so forth. But then particularly, these sensitive requirements existed during the authoritarian period as well. And uh, I think now, I don't think actually the 
Side administration would actually go after uh, these kind of outlets in a way that infringes on political freedoms. I think that's something that Taiwan really needs to uphold to, to distinguish itself from China. And so it is kind of being attacked as an issue, but this is leveraging on for politics. Um, Xiao, I mean, surely in the event of war, in wartime, the central government at the time should theoretically have the right to control the message. Uh, yes, I, I, I agree with that assertion because, uh, yeah, and that's very important to stress that it's during wartime. So, uh, during wartime, you have a lot of uh, misinformation and disinformation flying around. Not even wartime right now. In, in peacetime, there's a lot of those going around. So, especially it's critical for government to control, uh, information to make sure that, uh, uh, Taiwanese people knows what to, uh, respond and how to react. Um, so, and that, so that, that sounds reasonable, right? So right now, I think this act is just in the process of being drafted. Um, so there's a lot of, um, uh, bickering and all, all, all that going around trying to attack this, uh, uh, this act before it's coming into effect. Um, but I think it's still a lot being formed. So, um, but if you, Talking about controlling information, uh, I, I would definitely uh, understand the point where the government has to control it during wartime. And Brian, how would they how would they stop the spread of misinformation without actually taking entire media outlets off off the airwaves, <laughs> offline, and out of print? Well, it's hard to imagine they would go that far, I think, even in wartime. I mean, I think particularly with the war in Ukraine, one can see how there is still reporting uh, independently on what goes on there by Ukrainian outlets, by international outlets, and so forth. But then where these laws are used, it is more to go after the disinformation or misinformation that's targeted. And so it does depend because there are some outlets in Taiwan that one does not know how they will react in wartime. They could potentially serve as platforms to uh, spread misinformation and disinformation. But I think that particularly as a journalist, there is a need to be concerned about freedom of information and freedom of press, but also don't think it's as likely. And I think that this would occur, um, particularly, I think it would actually focus on misinformation and disinformation. And so the question is, particularly now even, just with the current measures, is that enough to spread, uh, prevent the spread of misinformation and disinformation? And so it's very hard to prevent that from happening, even wartime or during peacetime. Uh, and so there's kind of consideration of those measures, but I don't, I don't actually think it would be used to that extent. Right. Uh, so w- one way I think it would be used is, uh, that, that's my speculation, is to, because uh, right now in peacetime, when we're dealing with misinformation and disinformation, we, uh, or even the government tends to err on the side of, uh, uh, you know, on the side of uh, being, you know, trying to uh, freedom of speech and freedom of uh, press. So not to control too much uh, what what can be uh, said and what can be reported. But during wartime, I think that that scale will be uh, adjusted a little bit and to make sure that uh, some, you know, uh, organizations who might have uh, uh, enemy behind it, it, it the, the information can be properly controlled and properly tightened. So I, I think that that's a way that's going to go into this side. But there's still a lot of, uh, um, a lot of uh, ideas still going around. So I think I wouldn't be too much uh, concerned about what this ag is going to do and there's been a major off and problem basically and a setback for breakfast eaters in recent months here as taiwan is undergoing a national egg shortage on a wednesday of this week agriculture minister chen ji jong said he's anticipating now that the shortage could be over by the end of this month as the government is introducing short and long-term measures to address the problem now according to chen up to five million eggs will be imported from australia by the end of march to fill the current daily deficit of between 500,000 and 800,000 eggs and those eggs are first being allocated to food processors so 
they can release their stocks of locally grown eggs to meet domestic consumption. The first batch of 360,000 of the said Australian eggs arrived in Taiwan on Tuesday evening. Now, the government has said that it will absorb the price difference of the imported eggs and the basically the imported eggs will not affect local retail prices. And it had to import the eggs from Australia due to widespread avian flu outbreaks in Japan, causing an egg shortage there also. Now, the Council of Agriculture has earmarked 1.8 billion NT this year to help local poultry farms renovate and modernise their operations, which are moves seen as key measures to achieve full self-sufficiency. Now, the modernisation plan is part of a three-year 3.3 billion NT government programme aimed at increasing the local poultry farming sector's resilience to outbreaks of bird flu and the impact of global climate change. So, Brian, has your breakfast been affected? <laughs> so far, not really. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting because I think there's a lot of discussion of egg shortages, how they affect consumers, but a lot of the, pass- the costs will probably be passed on to uh, restaurants and eateries because so many people in Taiwan eat out and it's sometimes much more affordable to eat out than to make food yourself. And so there's that. And uh, uh, there have been effects of inflation generally in the world, uh, post-Ukraine and so forth. But also in this case, it's regarding the avian flu. Uh, and so there are measures being taken to alleviate the shortage. But then it has become fodder for political tax. Uh, the Pan Blue Camp has, for example, framed this as a specific fault of the Tsai administration in terms of uh, supply shortages or lack of coordination and uh, framing it as a kind of major issue there. And it's also kind of interesting, too, because there is such concern about price hikes in Taiwan regarding everything from toilet paper to uh, Panadol or masks. There's all this kind of hoarding behavior that occurs, too, when there are fears of shortages. And so I think perhaps this is also a case. And Xiao, of course, the Council of Agriculture came out a few weeks ago and they, they blamed the weather for the <laughs> shortage of eggs, which I thought was pretty inane, really, yeah? Yeah, but, but like the Minister of Agriculture did say that, you know, the, the production's eggs depends on a lot of factors. It's just about a chicken laying eggs because it's about how you import a chicken and all the, uh, supply chain issues and also the avian flu and definitely some, uh, weather may be affecting the, the production levels. So, and also the, the, the feed and how you, you know, uh, how, how you, you know, the, the new chicken and the old chicken, how, how they, uh, change hands. So this is a lot of issues going on into, uh, you know, how, how we get the egg production to ramp up. But just like Brian said, um, it, it is a lot of speculations and Taiwanese people tend to, uh, hoard stuff when, when there's a wide speculation going around. So that might go into it a little bit. So I, I wouldn't be too worried about uh, the egg shortage in, in the short run. And Brian, what about, do you think people are hoarding eggs? <laughs> well, I think that's the thing that's interesting, though. You can't hoard eggs beyond a certain expiration date. So <laughs> that depends on terms of this behavior. But I mean, dovetailing even what we talked about a little bit earlier about disinformation, I mean, there is 208 PTT accounts that have been found to spreading disinformation about the egg shortages. And so even this gets uh, leveraged on for disinformation somehow. And so it's a bit strange when it's about eggs and so forth. But I think shortages, I mean, it's, it becomes a matter of political concern that way, I guess. And what have those PTT pages been saying? Uh, basically also blaming it on the Tsai administration. I think what's interesting, though, with this kind of disinformation is it often takes advantage of people not being aware of international developments. For example, that's not just Taiwan seeing these egg shortages or lack of awareness of external factors such as that, such as the avian flu or uh, whatever. And, of course, Xiao, the government did say it would, be, it would be absorbing the cost of the imported eggs. But, of course, when the government absorbs costs, us three as taxpayers... Also absorb the costs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that 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 is something that the government has to say to in order to alleviate all the stress and anxieties in this uh, in this so-called ad, you know shortage um, scenario, right? Because uh, what else are they going to do? Because the chicken is just not laying the eggs, and if they have to import it, uh, the, the best they can say that it's okay. Not, everyone is not going to be affected because we will absorb the costs.
And have you seen a shortage of eggs in your local supermarket shelf, Brian? To be honest, not really. I live uh, next to a egg vendor, and they seem to still have tons of eggs. I just see the trucks coming in every night full of eggs, so I have not actually seen that personally. And Shao, your local supermarket? No, I barely noticed at all. Really? Because my, I've noticed in my local supermarket. You did? Yeah, yeah. you go in there some days and it's <laughs> just bare of eggs. Whoa. Yeah, it's always a question for me if that's people hoarding or if it's uh, the actual shortage, though. I mean, I can, you, you can never really tell at this point, basically. Oh, it's just people that like to eat fried eggs. Yeah. There's a lot of them in my area, obviously. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week and National Taiwan University Associate Professor Shin Bing Long this week called for government measures to prevent age discrimination in the workplace and also to foster workplace environments that are friendly to older workers. The call comes as the number of workers aged 60 and over is growing significantly now. And government figures show that between 2010 and 2022, the number of workers of that age group in the workforce increased from just over 500,000 originally in 2010 to 1.031 million in 2022 and they now account for around 10 percent of the island's total workforce now the associate professor says the introduction of measures to make life nicer for elderly people who return to work are urgent as age discrimination in the workplace is becoming a norm and he says that older people who want or have to continue working are being forced to take less than ideal low-paying service sector jobs that younger people are simply unwilling to do now he also said although there are laws in place for subsidizing employers who hire older workers action should be taken to prevent employers from ignoring older applications during the hiring process shall so of course more <laughs> old people are going back to the workplace now due to the fact they got they're bored or they need the money because they don't have enough money in their retirement pension so i mean what needs to be done what measures could be taken to make their their lives much nicer in the workplace yeah because i am uh yeah i'm an entrepreneur myself and i actually applied for subsidies for hiring uh younger workers so right now i see the the, the government is preparing uh for uh regulations that will subsidize older workers and i'm certainly happy to see see that i mean any subsidies is good um for for any employers um but um just like Shin Bin Long said, uh, this is just carry, right? And it needs to uh, strengthen the stick as well, trying to uh, uh, get laws against employers, uh, discriminate against older people. I think that that is a, bit, uh, a little bit over the top because, uh, well, because it's, it's a free market, right? Because people have to, you know, look at all applications equally. And then if uh, some... Um, some job skills that is uh, favored the, the younger workers. Uh, there's just nothing uh, the government can do about that. So I think this is overall a good idea. Um, and older people returning to workplace is uh, is a is generally a good trend, so that they can you know slow down the uh, the uh, diseases or. or uh, Alzheimer or any any kind of old age disease if they return to work and they can more uh, sustain themselves. Um, but overall, I think this is. Uh, in, in, the, in the workplace, this is still a lot to be done to make sure it's a safe environment for older folks. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Taiwan is quickly on the way to becoming a super age society, and so this is going to be increasingly an issue. Uh, so there are older workers returning to workplace and so forth, but also people taking on other jobs, such as in convenience stores or security guards and so forth. And so I think particularly there's a kind of lack of variety in such work, and so maybe there could be ways to provide for more forms of work that elderly could take on or allowing for more kind of social acceptability of that. Uh, but in that sense, I think it also points to the failure of the social safety net that uh, older workers do have to return to the workplace, perhaps after retiring, uh, though sometimes perhaps they just 
just want to work. And so it's, it is a question there. And social responsibility share. I mean, obviously, when I go to my local 7-Eleven, they're usually predominantly younger people working there. Right. But do you think older people could work in the 7-Elevens as well? Well, I certainly see some older folks are working in my local 7-Eleven. And, um, yeah, I, I a lot of them in training, so they, they may take a longer times to get uh, on board. Um, but I think they, they definitely see a trend of uh, uh, older people returning to uh, work pla- workplaces. And um, yeah, just like Brian said, uh, this is uh, generally socially acceptable. I mean, generally, because uh, people tend to respect elderly. So, uh, and then if they have a lot of uh, uh, will to be in a workplace and sustain themselves, I think we're generally okay with that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of volunteer work currently taken on by elderly as well. I mean, mm-hmm. for example, in subway stations, uh, directing people or on the streets or work as volunteers in public institutions or whenever you go into a post office and there's like two people there that just that give you point to where to take your ticket to line up. Oftentimes they are elderly people. And so I think there is that. And so there are kind of uh, places, I think, and sometimes it is actually currently taken out by volunteer work. But I think then providing for ways for them to kind of make a little bit extra income in retirement or just survive because of the lack of a social safety net. I mean, those those are still questions, I think, to be pondered. And Xiao, you mentioned the fact that in Taiwan, being Taiwan, I mean, the, people are brought up to respect elderly people. But do you think there are some employers who shy away from employing elderly people for, like, odd reasons? Definitely. Definitely there will be employers shy away from old people, just like there will be employers shy away from uh, younger people um, because uh, all sorts of reasons, right? Because any, any kind of um, employers are... Uh, are different so the, the the job skill they're looking for um some may be legitimate you know i i, I don't want to say legitimate discrimination but in some workforces they require job skills for example like internet skills uh and it it, it can be said that older people tend to be less uh skillful uh in terms of uh, like uh, internet stuff um so that might constitute a reason for employers to not uh trying to hire, hire uh, older folks. Um, so that is also a reason. But sometimes um, the employers may just be thinking about, you know, the, the production issues or that, uh, and that there might not be, there will not be reasonable grounds to discriminate against folk, older folks. And Brian, you think these subsidies the government are going to offer will actually make more people hire elderly people? It's a good question. I think it's more of a question of uh, broader cultural attitudes rather than subsidies. Because I think the government tries to use subsidies to encourage everything from having more children to then hiring older people. It's not always the most successful. But I think it's more the issue of social attitudes and cultural attitudes. Because you don't see, I mean, old people, they can't do a certain job. You don't see many old people doing Uber Eats or Food Panda, for example. Yeah, I do actually do think I feel I see more and more, which is a bit concerning, but uh, that does that does occur. Um, so I think it is one of those questions, though. I mean, what are the jobs that are suitable for older people that perhaps uh, won't be able to work as long hours, for example? And moving on again now, and the Sports Administration has made it mandatory for sporting event organisers to pay ticket refunds if events advertised are not played as described. Now, the rather odd move comes after the Taoyuan Leopards' Dwight Howard sat at a home game against the Kaohsiung Aquas on December the 18th due to a sore knee, and the game had been advertised that Howard would be playing. Now, his absence sent some fans, and I'm using the word fan there very loosely for obvious reasons, into a tizzy fit as they argued that they had only purchased tickets to the game because the former NBA star was scheduled to play. Now, Leopard's general manager, Sui Jia, apologised to the fans and he stepped down from his post three days later and the team announced a compensation package for supporters who attended the game. Now, according to 
the Sports Administration's Competitive Sports Division, the standard agreement stipulates that items that must or need not be disclosed by game organisers and Howard did not play in the game as the team had advertised. Now, the Plus League's Kaohsiung Steelers, who recently signed Jeremy Lin, did not repeat the Leopards' mistake and did not advertise at which game Lin will be making his debut for the team. Now, under the Consumer Protection Act, sports teams whose advertising does not accurately describe the games that are played must be first given a warning basically, in accordance with that law. And apparently repeated offenders can get a fine of 300,000 NT. Now, I didn't quite understand this story, Shao, because, I mean, sorry, if you support the ty- the Taoyuan Leopards, you're going to go and see the Taoyuan <laughs> Leopards, whether Dwight Howard is there or not. That is exactly right. So I don't understand this uh, as well. I mean, because whether a player plays or not, it's- it's entirely up to the coach, right? If, uh, if the coach feels, uh, he can play the player to, to gain advantage, he certainly will play. Uh, but if the, the player is injured, not, well, whether it been beforehand or during a the game, then the coach will take the player out of play. I mean, so it should not be, you know, uh, it should not be up to the fans to decide. That's what I'm saying because, uh, um, it's sports. I mean, so the fans pay the ticket to see the team. Um, if certain player doesn't play, I don't I don't think that they are up. They have any right to ask for a refund, but certainly in Taiwan, things like this happen, and uh, 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 people cry foul, and then they protest to the government, and the government being, you know, <laughs> uh, being chaired by some somebody who needs to run re-elections, they need to pay attention to sort of uh, news like this, so they will have to respond, and so that's why we are discussing this right here. <laughs> but to me, it's absurd. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so too with eggs with the government taking on the market costs, and so too with basketball players, apparently. Uh, I also do wonder in this case about these people that claim to be fans of Howard when they want him to play with an injury just because they bought a ticket and they want to see him play despite being injured. So there's that as well, but uh, it does seem a bit absurd. I mean, there is the issue when, let's say, an international artist comes to Taiwan, but then they can't make it, or they have COVID, or uh, they, they have a visa issue or something like that, and just for various things they cannot control, they can't make it. Maybe in those cases that refund is justified, but then regarding this, it's a basketball game, and perhaps he's injured and so people just want to see him go play despite that. That's a bit strange. Because, I mean, a player could go, I mean, basketball, baseball, a player could go onto the pitch or the court, trip over accidentally <laughs> before the game started yeah. and have to be taken off the court. I exactly. mean, the fans then have an argument, hey, he didn't play, you said he was going to play, where's my money back? Yeah, it's a bit strange there. I mean, there's fixation on these superstar players now, but then it's not always helpful for the sport, for the players, or I think just in general in that sense. And Xiao, I mean, if it, go, if it gets put to, like, the concert sector, you could, a famous band, for example, come over from Europe or America, and maybe their guitarist is sick, and they have to get a temporary guitarist in. Can the fans of this band then demand a refund because the actual band guitarist wasn't playing? Exactly. So this is going to create havoc, I mean, in the uh, not only sporting, but the uh, entertainment industry, right? Because uh, so w- how do you define misadvertised? I mean, it's so vaguely defined. So people can just take advantage of this and then see some show and then afterwards they ask for refund. So essentially trying to see a free shows. So this is, um, yeah, this is going to create a lot of havoc. So I hope this doesn't really uh, uh, pan through um, but, and people are going to pay more attention to the details of all this whole thing. And Brian, do you think it's the actual fans that are doing this or people <laughs> that just want to go and see a superstar for like two hours? Yeah, I think so. Or just take a photo for Instagram or something about <laughs> <Okay>. that sort. <laughs> 
And before we go this week, former presidential advisor and founder of the Taiwan New Constitution Foundation, Gu Guangming, passed away at the Taipei Veterans General Hospital on Monday. He was 97. Now, Gu was born in Taipei in 1926 and went on to study political science at the National Taiwan University before moving to Japan after facing arrest by the military police. While in Japan, he founded the Japan branch of the World United Formosans for Independence. Gu was invited back to Taiwan in 1972 for a meeting with then Premier Zhang Jingguo, which didn't go down too well with members of the World United Formosans for Independence as he was expelled from the group. He then returned to Taiwan permanently in 1975 and continued to promote Taiwan independence, launch political parties and also publish news magazines. He later joined the DPP and served as an advisor to Chen Shui-bian and Tsai Ing-wen. He ran unsuccessfully for the post of DPP chair in 2008 and he founded the Taiwan Brain Trust think tank and the Taiwan New Constitution Foundation. However, while he was cheered for his Taiwan independence views by some, he made some, well, rather misogynistic comments, which didn't sit well with many people, Brian. Yeah, that's right. And so he was one of the pro-independence elders that criticized Tsai, and particularly uh, going after Tsai for being Taiwan's first female president, saying in Berkeley that a woman should not, uh, someone that wears a skirt should not lead the ROC army. And so that caused criticism. Uh, there was that kind of split that occurred during those period regarding the older pro-independence elders and perhaps the younger generation that is more progressive on social issues. And so that did occur. But I think that after his death, I mean, he's still respected as an elder, but there was this kind of controversy near his uh, later years. Yeah, but he just like Brian said, he's to- totally a respected elder in the Taiwanese uh, independence camp, and he, uh, in 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 some aspects, he really take, took care of a lot of uh, younger generation in the uh, Taiwanese independence uh, movement. So uh, it, a lot of legacy uh, living behind. So that, so it, it is a it is a, a pity that uh, he's one of uh, uh, five elders that's called for. Uh, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen not to run for re-election, um, but still, uh, a lot of people still respect him for what he's done. And of course, Brian, he also famously didn't stand up for the national anthem once upon a time. <laughs> well, that happens, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, he also did actually, I think, uh, eventually back tie and like some of the other elders. So he had much more flexibility regarding that uh, in terms of the uh, political sense he took. But it's one of those kind of odd things, I think, about history that a lot of these, uh, for example, like Su Bing also died not a few years ago, and it's, he also lived to around like 100. And so a lot of these older people from that period haven't very long lived, but I think it's a, a sign of the changing of the times in that sense. And Brian, I mean, obviously, do you think young people know who he is? I think it depends on who. I mean, I think that particularly people are politically active, sure, but uh, it depends on actually, I think, the uh, average young person that's not as politicized, perhaps not. And shall, should he be put in the history books? I think totally, especially when you consider he's from the uh, the five most uh, famous families, the Gu families from in Taiwan, in central Taiwan, the Zhanghua, um, who, whose family, other members who built uh, the, the China Trust Bank uh, uh, the, the, the conglomerate. Um, so it, he doesn't, it definitely have his place in, in our history books. Yeah, I think so. I think there's kind of no denying this in terms of that. I mean, in terms of being a historical figure, his uh, influence is, is quite large. I mean, uh, a lot of uh, odd things that occurred during the democratization movement, for example, just sneaking back to Taiwan, appearing at rallies or things like that, uh, that also was part of his kind of very storied history. And so I kind of wonder about uh, the ability to kind of remember some of this history that's not as in the official history books or whatever, but uh, a lot of key figures of this period, I think, are passing on. So it does raise these questions. Of course, Xiao, he also did talk about China. Being Taiwan and China being brothers, and China should accept Taiwan if it declares independence. Yeah, I mean the the the, the Gu family is, is a lot of um, different views because if you consider it very first uh, the, the Gu 
family. He's actually worked with the uh, uh, Japanese government back in the day. And then there's a lot of good brothers who work with the KMT. And then he's in Taiwanese uh, independence camp. So he definitely has a very strong view that Taiwan should be uh, our own country. And then the China should respect Taiwan's sovereignty. Yeah, I, I can't really see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Xiao Xing Chung. Good night, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.